0: Psalm 139. And again, I think it's probably one of the most well-known psalms and a favorite psalm of many people. And this psalm is about the all-knowing, always-present God. When your problems seem bigger than God... Remember this psalm. Don't just remember it. Read it. And you know. I hope as you've gone through all these these psalms. That you would make little notations above the psalm. Okay. This one when I'm bummed out. This one when you know I need deliverance. This one's for when my enemies surround me. And, and, and <clears throat> again make a little notation here. That uh, again when your problems seem bigger than God. Read this psalm. So that you know where to go in the Bible when you need to read something encouraging and and strengthening in some time of need. Jeremiah 23, verse 23 and 24, God said this. Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God that's far off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so that I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? Solomon said in Proverbs fifteen three, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. <clears throat> Amos 9, 1 through 4 says this, I saw the Lord standing by the altar. And he said, Strike the doorposts, that the thresholds may shake, and break them on the heads of them all. I will slay the last of them with the sword. He who flees from them shall not get away, and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall shake them, or shall, uh, my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on top of Mount Carmel, from there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. Though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword, and it shall slay them. I will set my eyes on them for harm and not good. Again, God is all seeing and he's everywhere present. This is a wisdom psalm describing praise for God's attributes. This psalm describes the attributes of the Lord, not as abstract qualities. You know, something that's not real, but as active qualities. by, By how he relates himself to his people. The structure of the psalm goes like this. First, a description of God's intimate knowledge of his servant in verses 1 through 6. Second, a celebration of God's presence with David in verses 7 through 12. Third, a celebration of God's creation of David at the moment of conception, verses 13 through 16. Fourth, a declaration that God's thoughts toward David are innumerable, verses 17 through 18. Fifth, a prayer for the punishment of God's enemies, verses 19 through 22. And last, a prayer that God might search and lead David, verses 23 through 24. The theme again is God is all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere present. God knows us, God is with us, and his greatest gift is to allow us to know him The author is David. And this psalm is basically about the omniscience of God. That is all-knowing. His all-seeing eye and His inescapable presence. He knows you. He knows you better than any doctor. He knows you better than any psychologist. He knows you better than any friend. He knows you better than your wife or your husband. And when you have a problem, you don't have to be psychoanalyzed. You don't have to tell some psychotherapist everything. Why don't you just tell the Lord everything? You might as well. He knows everything anyway. He knows everything about you. He knows more about yourself than you do. We read in John 4.12, when Jesus looked at Peter, he said to Peter, Peter, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, but you shall be called Cephas. You see, he saw what Peter was at the moment, but he says, Peter, you are going to be Cephas, which is translated a stone. He saw Peter's future. He saw saw what he was going to be like jesus saw not only who simon was but he would but who he would become and that's why he gave simon or peter a new name peter wasn't rock solid all through the gospels but you know what he became rock solid in the days of the early church in the book of acts god knows your character and he knows your destiny he sees your potential In Matthew 26, verses 31 through 35, Jesus said to the disciples, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, that is Peter, Assuredly, I say to you, Peter, that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Then Peter said, Even if I have to die with you, I will will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Let's begin now with verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 139. Psalms uh, verses one through 6 tells us that God knows what you do. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. But you have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. In other words, David says, God, you know me. You know wherever I am. You know whatever I'm doing. You know every move that I make. You know when I sit down. You know when I get up. You know the attitude in which I do these things. You know what my soul depends on for its peace and support. You know what my soul wants to make it happy. You know me, Lord, when I come home. You know how I behave in my house. You know me when I go out of town. You know what I'm, you know what I'm doing when I'm in that hotel room all alone. You know what I do every day. You know what I think about. You know my thoughts from afar off. You know my thoughts even before I do, God. You know me. You know all of my plans. You know all of my projects. You know the good and the evil of what I do. God sees every step that we take. He sees every right step. He sees every wrong step. He's acquainted with all of our ways. And he's very closely aware of our ways. And he knows why we walk that way. He knows what the goal is that we're walking towards. And he knows who we're talking with and associating with. David said, God, you know me in all my quiet moments. You know my lying down. You know when I'm withdrawn from people. You know what's in my heart at the end of the day. You know what I'm thinking about when I go to bed. You know every word on my tongue. There's not one word on my tongue. Not a bad word nor a good word that you don't know about. That you don't know what I mean and from where that thought came from. And the reason that I said it. There's not a word on my tongue, Lord. I'm ready to say or hold back that you don't know about. When there's no words on my tongue, you know. You know every part of me. Verse 5 says, you have hedged me behind and before. So that wherever I go, I'm under your watchful eye. I can't possibly escape it. Verse 5 says, you've laid your hand upon me, and I can't run away from you. All his children are in his hand. And in verse 6, David admires God's omniscience. He says, there's such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I can't attain it. In other words, God, it, it, it's, it's too great for me to know. First of all, God, you know more about me than I know about myself or I could ever know. I can't know all my own thoughts. I can't make judgments about myself like you do. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.3 that he couldn't even trust his own judgments. Secondly, <clears throat> it's a knowledge I can't, I can't understand, much less describe You know all things, but I don't, and I can't. And then in verses 7 through 12, these verses tell us that God knows where you go. Verse 7 and 8 speak of God's omnipresence. Let's look at verse 7 and 8. And David says, where can I go from your spirit? Or or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. Again, he's present everywhere. You see, so you can never be lost to his spirit, the Holy Spirit. And you know what? This is great news for those who know and love God. Because no matter what we do or where we go, we can never be far from God's comforting presence that's why it's foolish to think that just because we can't see him he can't see us i love what job said in chapter 23 verses 8 through 10 and we you know went through this in job he says look i go forward he says i look i go forward but he's not there and backward but i cannot perceive him when he works on the left hand i cannot behold him when he turns to the right hand I cannot see him but here's what really matters but he knows the way that i take and there in verse 8 and 9 notice again he says if i send into heaven you are there if i make my bed in hell behold you are there now the word hell here in the old testament is sheol it's not literally hell the place of, of torment and darkness The word Sheol speaks of the place of the unseen and the unknown. David says, even God is there. No matter where you go, he's there. Verses 9 and 10. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. He says, even in the farthest away places in the world, wherever I could possibly go, that was the farthest away place in the world. He says, if I take the wings of the morning, that is, if I ride the wings of the morning, that is the rays of the morning light, and I run away to the farthest parts of the sea or earth, if I run away to the most distant and unknown islands, I'll find you there. And he said, there your hand shall lead me. As far as I go and your hand, your right hand shall hold me up so that I can't go any further, so that I cannot go out of your reach. Verse 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. In other words, nothing can hide us from God's eye. Not even the thickest darkness. God can see in the darkest of nights just as good as he can see in the brightest of days. Sinners like to do their evil things in the dark. Because they think nobody will see them. And obviously, it makes it harder for people to see them. And you know, why do you think that these these places where we go to, to party and to sin, like, like nightclubs and bars, why do you think they're so dimly lit? So you can't really see what's going on. When God made light and God made darkness, they were both the same to him. Darkness does not limit God's ability to... To see what's going on. God doesn't say, you know what, I, I better wait till morning until morning time so that I can see what Joe's doing. He can see what I'm doing. No matter what, time of day, whether it's dark or bright out. No shadow, no mask, no disguise, no cover of darkness can keep God from seeing anyone or anything people do because they are completely exposed before God. Sins done in the secret, in secret or in darkness, they're just as plain to see to the Lord as those done in broad daylight. Verses 13 through 16 now tell us that God knows what you are. Look at verses 16. I'm sorry, 13 through 16. David said, For you formed And in your book, they were all written. The days fashioned for me, when as yet there was none of them. From the moment that we are conceived in the womb, we never get away from God's presence in this life. God is everywhere. And man is the crown of God's creation. Man is a fabulous creature. You know, and when you talk to people who are down and out on themselves, and oh, I'm not anything, and I'm not any good, and I'm not worthy, and I'm not this, and I'm not that, read them this passage. Hey, God says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Genesis 1.27 says, God created us, man, in His own image, in the image of God He created him. And we have God's attention all of the time. Now these verses clearly teach the individuality of a child while still in its mother's womb. Again, a great passage. When you want to Discussed abortion with somebody. The main issue when it comes to abortion is the identity of the fetus. And the argument is, hey, I have a right to do what I want with my own body. And this is based on the argument that the fetus isn't a person yet. That it's just a part of the woman's body. Like tonsils. Or appendix. I can have them taken out. I can have them removed whenever I want. If I want to. And you see that's why the words over the years have been changed so radically to describe the unborn child. 40, 50 years ago everyone referred to the unborn child as a baby. And pregnant women knew they were carrying a baby. But you see, that makes it hard for anyone to think peacefully about killing a baby. So today, people have renamed the baby a fetus or embryo or, worst of all, tissue. Because you see, getting rid of tissue doesn't seem so bad. But you see, the Bible doesn't call the unborn baby tissue. The trouble with trying to pinpoint a time when the developing child is fully human is that there isn't one. One commentator said there is an an uninterrupted development of the child from the very moment when the sperm of the father joins the ovum of the mother and the cell begins to divide. The father's seed cannot multiply by itself, nor can the mother's egg. But as soon as the two sets of chromosomes combine, not only does the development of life continue steadily unless interrupted, either accidentally or deliberately, but the life that is developing is a unique life. There is no other combination of chromosomes exactly like these new ones. The fetus is already a uniquely determined individual. So you see, in the perceptiveness, in the, in the enlightenment, enlightened wording of David that was given to him by the Holy Spirit. Here he's talking about this his unique individuality from the very first moments of existence in the womb. From that very first moment, God knew him. And ordained what his life was going to be, according to verse 16. You knew my history. You wrote out my whole life before I was even formed. So, if that's the way God sees the unborn child, how dare anyone take the liberty of calling it tissue and destroy the unborn like we're doing in our country today at the rate of millions of babies a year. David is saying that even before his body was formed, he was a person. A human being. He was a person as he was being formed in the womb. As he was being formed, even before the members of his body were formed, he was a person. And before any of that had taken place, God had already written out what his life was going to be. Personhood is said to have taken place at the very moment of conception. And the Bible is clear on this. While the body was being formed, David said, I was a person. I was a human being. God had the blueprint of his members, of David's members, even before they came into existence. The person was there. So don't blame the the instructions or the preacher for what the Bible says. Blame David if you want to. He wrote it and blame the Holy Spirit because he declared it in the word of God. Verses 17 through 18 tell us that God knows what you think. Let's look at verses 17 through 18. David says, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Here David acknowledges God's omniscience in different ways. First, he acknowledges it with wonder and thanksgiving. He says, you know, how how God took care of him all of his life. God who knew him thought of him. And God's thoughts of him towards him were thoughts of love thoughts of good and not of evil as jeremiah twenty nine eleven tells us god could have just as easily used his omniscience to watch over us so that he could hurt us but he didn't he used it for us and he's watched over us to do us good It reads in Jeremiah thirty-one twenty-eight, And it shall come to pass, that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy, and to afflict, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. God's thought about us and our good, man, they are precious thoughts to God. They're so deep we can't possibly begin to understand God's thoughts about us. Like David said, what is is man that you are mindful of us? There are none good. They've all gone astray. They've all gone their own way. And yet God's thoughts of us are precious. Providence. That is the will of God has played a huge part in our life. And God's providence has brought about things uh, for our good way beyond anything that we could ever do or imagine or foresee. God's thoughts are precious to us. And we need to think of them with reverence and joy and thankfulness that that He thinks of us. Our thoughts concerning God must be pleasant to us above any other thoughts they're numerous david said in verse 4 and 17 how great is the sum of them we can't begin to imagine how many kind thoughts god has about us and and why and how many good things god has done for us and how many different mercies he's given us over the years David says, man, if we could count them, they would be more than the grains of the sands of the sea. And yet everyone is great and everyone is significant. Psalm 40 verse 5 tells us that. We can't even begin to imagine the infinite number of God's mercies that are all new every single morning. And you know what? God's thoughts about us are constant at all times. When I wake in the morning every morning David says I'm still with you under your watchful caring eye I'm safe and I'm comfortable under your protection David knew that God's eye was upon him all the time when I'm wake, when I wake up I'm still with you I'm in your thoughts and you know what knowing this should help us should keep us, help keep us in the fear of the Lord all day long. When we wake up in the morning, our first first thought should be of Him, and then setting Him before us. Look at verse nineteen. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty man. David finishes here with the sure destruction of sinners. God knows all the wickedness of the wicked. So the wicked are going to pay for it one day. David says, surely you're going to slay the wicked, God. Because you've seen all their wickedness. It's, it's open before you. And no matter how they try to hide it, disguise it, cover it up, hide it from everybody... You still let them prosper for a while. But in the end, unless they repent, he's going to slay them. Now we have the wicked and the godly mentioned here. God says that he's going to judge the wicked and he's going to hear the prayer of his people. And praise God that he's all-knowing and he's all-powerful and that he's present everywhere. So as I said earlier this morning, Heard today in the first, in the first service that, that Jesus said we will be judged according to our works. That because he's all-knowing and he's all-powerful and he's present everywhere, he'll have all the facts. And we'll never be able to argue with God that he's unfair. Verses 20 through 22 tells us that God knows what you love. Let's begin with verse 20. For they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Notice. Notice the reason why God will punish the wicked. It's because they blaspheme Him. They defy Him, verse 20 says. They speak against Him wickedly. And they're going to be accountable for why they spoke evil against God. They're His enemies. And they prove it by their hostility, by taking his name in vain. And because the wicked are God's enemies, and David knows they'll be destroyed. He defies them. Verse 19 says, depart from me, you bloodthirsty men. David defies them. He says, you are not going to corrupt me, because I will not associate with you, I will, or nor will I have fellowship with you. And you can't destroy me because I am under God's protection and He will force you to depart from me. Verse 21 through 22. Do not, I'm sorry, do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. David detests the wicked. He says, Lord, you know my heart. You know that I despise those who rise up against you because they hate you. And because they hate you, I hate them. Because I love you, Lord, and I hate to see you offended. It grieves me, David said, when anybody comes against you. Does it it grieve you? When people blaspheme God or they come against God. I'm grieved to see their rebellion and their destruction in the end. Notice that sin is hated here. And notice that sinners are mourned for by all who fear God. Now, understand, when David says, I hate them with a great hatred, he's saying, I hate what they do. I hate the sin. I hate how they blaspheme you. I hate how that grieves you, God. He says, I hate them with a perfect and sincere hatred. God's enemies are my enemies. Remember, that I've said it many times, before how can we hate the things, or how can we love the things that God hates? How can we love the things that God hates? How can we hate the things that God loves? How can we love God's enemies in the sense that I'm going to associate with them and hang out with them? I love them because in the sense they're, they're, they're lost and they need the gospel. But David is saying, God, your enemies are my enemies and I will not have any fellowship with them. And then verse 23 and 24 tells us that God knows what you desire. Verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties or my anxious thoughts. Verse 24. And see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God knows what you desire. other We can rebel against God's knowledge. And we can, follow, we can follow after evil and do evil if we want to. And David knows this response in verses 19 through 22 and he rejects it. That we can rebel against God and his knowledge if we want to. We can follow after evil if we want to. That's what, again, like I said, verse 19 and 22 says and, 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 and David rejects this. Or we can ask God to search our hearts with the purpose of being directed in his way. David doesn't want anything to do with evil people. Or to do with evil. This doesn't mean that David didn't have anything to do with sinful people. You know, that's the only way we're, they're going to get saved is if we present the gospel to them. We have to love them enough to want to see them saved. To share the gospel with them. It means that David didn't want to be with those who were clearly evil. Who are just straight out blatantly evil. David was also so blown away... With God's greatness that he wanted nothing to endanger his relationship with him. David wants to continue walking and growing in the ways of God. Now these last two verses are very important and very personal. The problem that David sees is that even though he wants to stay away from evil people. He knows that he himself has evil. So he calls on God. He says, Lord, search my heart. Search me out, Lord. And that, that in order that I might be led in a righteous way. In a way that's everlasting. He prays for four things. He prays for God to know him. And to expose his thoughts. Second, he prays for God to try or perfect his thoughts. Third, he prays for God to remove whatever evil that is still in him. And fourth, he prays for God to lead him in the way everlasting. Here David is asking God to use his greatness, his perfect, all-knowing knowledge to help him personally. He wants God to use the knowledge that he has of him, of David, to lead him in the right way. Search me, O God. Know my heart. This is a serious thing to pray for. And it's funny that I had already prepared this message way before I had my surgery. And it says this is a serious thing. One commentator said this is a serious thing to search to pray for because it's asking for what could be painful exposures and surgery. If we really mean it, if we really mean when we say, "God, search me, I know my heart," because asking for it could be painful. If we really want what's best for us, that could be painful. It could be inconvenient. It could be costly. You know, a lot of times I've heard people say, oh, I'm I'm afraid to pray for that because I'm afraid, you know, that, that it might happen. Well, if that's what's best for us, shouldn't we want that? A lot of times we we, we do things that our children don't like, and it's painful to them, or costly, or inconvenient, or just they don't like it, but we do it because it's best for them. It's best for them. And we do it because we love them. It's what every wise believer should want Lord, search me show me anything in my life that, that, that grieves you, that doesn't make you happy, <clears throat> that's unacceptable to you, that would keep me from service, that would disqualify me from serving you. If we recognize and appreciate God's omniscience, man, it should make every one of every Christian humble. In closing. If we ever start to understand God's perfect knowledge in comparison to our own pitiful understanding, the first effect this should have on us is humility. God is infinitely wise. We're not. I mean, again, that should humble us. And if we come to that understanding and that humility, we'll be embarrassed to think that we ever thought that we could compete with God intellectually. Think about it. God's knowledge, God's knowledge is so perfect that He even He even answers our prayers before we ask them. While well, they're still sometimes coming out of our mouth. It reads in Isaiah 65, 24, It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are speaking, I will hear. Knowing that, how can we be afraid of a God who knows and answers us like that? All-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present. How can we be afraid of a God like that and not trust a God like that with our life? Father, we come before you. We thank you so much for this beautiful psalm, Lord. We thank you for <clears throat> the enlightenment that you gave David. The perception, God. And Lord, may we ask as David did oh God search our hearts show us God show us our hearts show us if there's any wicked way in us Lord that would disqualify us from service that would grieve you displease you God God Father, help us to be all that you have called us to be and want us to be. And Father, may we look to you, God, all in all of your wisdom and in your all-knowing, everywhere-present personality, God, to trust you in all things, with all things every day, all the time. Father, may you bless my brothers and sisters as they go home. May you get them there safely, God. And may you bless the beginning of their week. May you continue to be with them, provide for them, protect them, Lord. Cover them from all illness and disease, God. God, we pray for our brothers and our sisters that are sick. Father, may you uh, raise them up, God. May you heal them. We pray for our brother Richard, God, in the hospital right now. God, that you would just continue doing a mighty work in his life, God, and his family. God, we ask that you just, uh, again, be glorified in who you are. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Next week.